0: People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Today's guest on HealthGig is Dr. John Farrell. Do you ever wake up with like an aching back? Do you kind of feel pain in your joints where maybe you haven't felt them before? You're going to be so excited to meet Dr. Farrell. He is a board-certified family physician specializing in regenerative orthopedics. Welcome, Dr. Farrell, to HealthGig.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: We're so excited to have you here because we are all about trying to find out what is regenerative orthopedics and what is orthobiology and what are all these things that are happening that seems to be disrupting the space of orthopedic surgery. But before we get started on that, tell us about you. Tell us about your background, how you got started at doing all this kind of work.
1: I'm a native Washingtonian. I was born in the city and grew up in uh, Prince George's County, uh, just outside of the city. Uh, I did my undergrad training at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. After going to UMBC, I did uh, med school at Penn State. That's kind of where I fell in love with orthopedics. So after four years of med school, I did a general surgery intern year. And I was lucky enough to have a rich uncle pay for medical school. That was
0: Uncle Sam. (laughs) So
1: after I finished my general surgery year, the Navy said we want you to come and be a general medical officer. So I was a general medical officer in the Navy uh, for four years. That's when I actually started to find kind of non-surgical orthopedics because I was taking care of sailors and their families and you know, I was giving them options that were shy of surgery. And that's really when I kind of first got introduced to orthobiologics and regenerative medicine. And I thought that this was really going to be the future of orthopedics. From there, I decided to go into primary care and then do a primary care sports medicine fellowship, which is a fellowship after I finished my family medicine residency. And during that fellowship, I got a chance to spend time in the Redskins training room. I covered uh, DC United for the full year, got to spend time down with the Nats at spring training. I was the team physician for George Mason University, and I also helped to take care of Chantilly High School. We learned musculoskeletal ultrasound, which was a point of care test where I could put the ultrasound directly on your injury and see if there's a tear. If there's not a tear, where normally you'd have to send people out to get an MRI and bring them back. And they also kind of introduced us on kind of regenerative medicine. At that time, we were using a lot of platelet-rich plasma. We were also exposed to some bone marrow during that fellowship that's really where I kind of got my training and my background in regenerative medicine. And then from there I went on and I was a team physician for DC United. I worked with an orthopedic surgeon. I started to realize that we had a little bit of friction. There were certain patients that I was able to get better with regenerative medicine that they normally would have operated on. And so with that friction, I got together with my two other co-founders, Victor Ibrahim, who has since passed away, and David Wang, and we created Regenerative Orthopedics and Sports Medicine back in 2014. That was our first location was down in Capitol Hill. We've kind of grown since then, and we now have six locations across the greater DC area. And we went from three physicians, and we now have 11 physicians and four PAs. And so that's kind of a long and short kind of my background and kind of uh, where we are and how we got to be where we are today.
0: So how does it work? Like who comes to you and why do they come to you? And why is it smart to come to you first?
1: Well, when we look at the field of orthopedics compared to pretty much any other field in medicine, orthopedics is a little bit backwards. And the reason why I say that is, you know, if you playing basketball and you roll your ankle, people roll their ankle all the time. We know it's not a surgical condition, you know, 90% of the time. But the first thing people think of is, let me go see my orthopedic surgeon. And so my analogy is, if you get chest pain and you think you're having a heart attack, the first thing you don't think of is, let me find my heart surgeon. You say, let me find my cardiologist. So in medicine, there's a lot of non-surgical things that we can do. And surgery should typically be the last stage of things. The reason why we think that we're important is we fill a gap. There's a lot of people that can get better with conservative care, like physical therapy. And then there's a handful of people that need really aggressive care, like surgery. And so there's a void in between those two. And that's the void that we fill with kind of the non-surgical orthopedics and regenerative medicine.
0: That makes so much sense. You're right. So, I mean, when something happens, you will immediately call an orthopedic surgeon. And what you're saying is, hey, wait, let's start exploring some other ways to get you better. And you also really believe that the body can heal itself, right? You're a really true believer that the body can find its way to balance. Can you talk about that and how you see that working and some of the treatments that really aid that?
1: The body is an amazing machine and it does an excellent job of healing itself. It works typically really hard to heal itself for the first four to six weeks. So, you know, the analogy, you know, I kind of use with that is if you get a cut on your skin, you're working in the yard, you have platelets that form that clot. So you get a scab that's there. And then after a couple of weeks, that scab falls off and then now you have a scar. So the platelets essentially form the clot, they release growth factors, and they told stem cells to come to this area to heal and repair. The stem cells look around and they say, what environment are we in? Oh, we're in skin. So let's turn into skin cells. So when that scab falls off and you have that brand new scar, that's brand new skin tissue that wasn't there before, that your body was able to heal. And so, usually by the end of four to six weeks, that's kind of healed up and then slowly turns back into the normal color. Now, sometimes if you have a very large cut, your body's going to work to heal and repair it for the very first four to six weeks. But sometimes we get to that six week mark and it's not completely healed. So now you're left with a bigger scar, a keloid, or something that just hasn't healed all the way. So, that's usually when we like to come in and say, how do we use regenerative medicine to restart that healing cascade? A number of the different things that we use can include something called prolotherapy.
0: Yeah. And you were hearing so much more about prolotherapy, right? And we're acting like it's new here in the States, but it's been around for a long time. So yeah, tell us about that. And what is it?
1: Prolotherapy is a concentrated solution of dextrose. Dextrose is a sugar. We usually dilute the dextrose, sometimes with lidocaine, sometimes with saline, and then we inject it into areas of pathology usually tendons and ligaments. And when we inject this concentrated solution of sugar, it creates an inflammatory response. So it acts as an irritant. So it tricks your body into thinking that you have a new injury. So your body's response is we need to heal and repair. Prolotherapy, the first published study that I know of came out in the 1920s and was actually on TMJ. One of the first studies in low back pain was in the 1950s. It was done by a back surgeon who used to put screws in the back to fuse the back and he was getting awful results switched over to prolotherapy, you got significantly better results. So this has been out for a very long time. It's safe and it's effective.
0: Do you use it a lot? Is it sort of one of the first sort of standard treatments or how does one know to ask for prolotherapy? Like what are the standards, I guess?
1: Prolotherapy, we use it a lot in tendinopathy. We use it a lot in chronic ankle or joint instability, things that haven't kind of healed in that first kind of four to six weeks. And this helps out a lot people who are hypermobile seem to do very well with prolotherapy and so it's kind of our first level or introductory into kind of regenerative medicine i also use prolotherapy a lot for what i call my in-season athletes these are people that can't shut down for long periods of time we can do prolotherapy that helps to kind of keep things stable through the season until we get into the off season and then we can do something a little bit stronger to get them all the way back to 100 percent
0: yeah and again this is substances that are working with your body And you're using, again, your body's intelligence to get itself better. Absolutely. Which is so fascinating that, as you say, it's been available, but people just don't know really it's there. You know, the other things that we're hearing a lot about is PRP. Can you talk to us? What is PRP? PRP is platelet-rich
1: plasma. All right. So PRP has been out for about 20 some years. A lot of the studies initially started off in racehorses who would have a lot of tendon issues. They would use PRP and the resources to allow them to get a couple extra years of life before they retired from racing. PRP came to the mainstream in humans right around 2008. Heinz Ward, who used to play for the Pittsburgh Steelers, ended up getting an MCL sprain two weeks before the Super Bowl. Got PRP, came back not only near 100%, but he was actually the MVP of the Super Bowl. And so that's, you know, one of the things that kind of really brought PRP to the forefront. It was also right about the same time that Tyra Woods was getting PRP treatments also. And so that's when things started to become kind of mainstream with humans. We use the PRP, the platelet rich plasma for a number of different conditions. There's level one evidence. So these are double blind randomized controlled studies to show that it's beneficial in tendon issues and mild to moderate osteoarthritis, plantar fasciitis. You know, level one evidence and what we used to think of as trochanteric bursitis, bursitis at the side of the hip, but really it's tendinosis or tendinitis of the glute muscle that attaches there, lateral epicondylitis or tennis elbow. So these are some of the areas that have a lot of good research and data to support its use in those areas.
0: What is level one studies? What is that?
1: Yep. These are double blind, randomized controlled studies. So these are the top tier type of research that we can do
0: Because I think sometimes people think that this is not science-based, right? Sometimes people are like really skeptical about some of these treatments.
1: There's level one evidence out there to support this. I think the issue comes in with PRP in particular is not all PRP is the same. And there's a number of different ways and different kits that are out there to produce PRP. Some are really good. Some are not so good. The other thing that I think is very important is the application of PRP. How do you do it? right? So we usually use PRP in what we consider a comprehensive approach. So if I have someone who has knee osteoarthritis with a medial meniscus tear and a strain of their medial collateral ligament, instead of just putting PRP into the knee joint and saying, I hope that this works, I'm going to do PRP into the knee joint using ultrasound to guide my injection. I'm going to put PRP into the meniscus using ultrasound to find the tear and inject it directly in the tear. And then also using the ultrasound to find the strain in the MCL, and I can place the PRP there under ultrasound guidance. And then when the patient comes back and sees us in four to six weeks, we're going to repeat the ultrasound to monitor that healing, to see if tissue's filling in, to see if it's more stable. So not only are we looking for less pain, we're looking for better range of motion and increased activity.
0: Can you walk us through how PRP happens? And also, what I love about your office is that the ultrasound, and you said this at the beginning, the ultrasound machine is right there, right? It's like right there. You don't have to go anyplace else, which is awesome. So when you refer to the fact that you're using the ultrasound, we're in your office, right? Getting this injection. What is PRP? How do you, what is it?
1: With PRP, what we do is we do a blood draw, just like if you were getting your lab work done in your doctor's office. With that blood, we put it in a centrifuge. And we spin it. And so that allows us to separate the red and white blood cells from the platelets in the plasma. So what we find is that the platelets are really the key thing. And when we concentrate that we typically increase your platelet level by about five to six times your baseline level. And so that allows us to really super concentrate those platelets, which contain growth factors and serve as a magnet or a beacon to tell stem cells where to go. And we put it directly into the area of pathology. And so that's going to start off your body's natural healing cascade of saying, "Up, oh, there's an injury. The platelets that are here, just like the story we told about before, if you had a cut on your skin, that the platelets form that clot. So now we put those concentrated platelets directly in the tear, those growth factors release and the stem cells know exactly. Okay. There's where I need to go in order to try to heal repair and to get things better.
0: What's the downtime with PRP? Because I know prolotherapy, there's really no downtime, right?
1: Yeah. With prolotherapy, I usually have people take it easy for a couple of days and then slowly get back to their normal activity. With PRP, we're usually a little bit more aggressive at shutting people down. We want to give this a time to start the healing cascade, to start the repair before we jump back into exercise. Typically, the first three days, baby, whatever part that we treat it. If it's the knee, if it's the hip, if it's the shoulder. You know, we'll sometimes put people on crutches for the knee and the hip shoulder. We'll usually put somebody in a sling for the first three days. After three days, we get rid of the crutches, we get rid of the sling, start doing normal range of motion, and you can start doing exercises on other parts of the body that we didn't inject. So if you had an injection into your knee, you can do upper body exercises. If you had an injection in your shoulder, you can do lower body exercises. And then we usually like to start physical therapy right around 10 to 14 days. And so the physical therapist is going to work on range of motion. They're going to work on what we call isometric strengthening, pushing against something that doesn't move. Then they're going to progress to concentric or normal type of strengthening exercises, squats, lunges, and then they're going to slowly kind of progress you as pain tolerates. And then we usually follow up with the patient around six weeks, repeat an ultrasound, repeat the evaluation, and kind of determine if a second injection is needed. Depending on how bad your pathology Some people will need one injection. Some people need two. It's very rare, but sometimes we we actually go to a third. But typically, we don't need more than that to get people back to feeling less pain, better range of motion, and better function in the right patient population.
0: Is this something that you age out? Is this for young people or is this for any age?
1: No, you know, I have (laughs) patients that have done PRP that are all the way into their 90s. Even in your 90s, things are slower, right? But you can still heal. You can still repair, especially if you're otherwise healthy. Now, I think that you know, age can play a part in this, but really it's more other major medical issues. So if you have diabetes, hypertension, things like that, that may slow some of that healing response also. So the more your body is optimized, the more healthy you are, the faster you recover in these situations.
0: That's such good news for everybody. And I think it always is the same story as just staying strong as best you can and healthy because things are changing so quickly in your field. What else do you have that you offer that's exciting that we don't know about?
1: Like I said, with the PRP, uh, most of the studies show that it works well in early arthritis, stage one or stage two, and it works well in chronic tendon issues. But when we start to have partial thickness tears, if we start to get more severe osteoarthritis, that's usually when we go to our next step, which is either looking at bone marrow or microfragmented adipose. Bone marrow is when we do a bone marrow aspirate, very similar to somebody who's donating bone marrow, and we concentrate your bone marrow. And what we're doing is bone marrow contains mesenchymal stem cells, as well as growth factors and platelets. And then we can concentrate some of those mesenchymal stem cells, the platelets and the growth factors, and inject it into these areas that have greater pathology. So there was one study from an orthopedic surgeon out in France named Hernigau who took approximately 120 knees, about 60 patients. These patients had knee osteoarthritis bad enough that they were scheduled for a knee replacement in both knees. He did bone marrow stem cells on one knee and he replaced the other knee. What he found is that 12 months, he had equal benefit in both knees. Patients were like, hey, both knees feel better, you know, equally kind of across the board. But when asked, you know, which one would you rather have, Most of them were like, no, I like the stem cell. It was a lot less invasive. The rehab was a lot easier. And, you know, the outcomes seemed to be about the same. Now, he followed these patients out for an average of 15 years. And what he found is that approximately 20% of the people that got the bone marrow stem cells did progress to get a knee replacement. But the people that had the knee replacement, approximately 20% of them had to get a revision surgery. His conclusion was that you know, about 80% of the people that got the bone marrow stem cell at 15 years out did not progress to get a knee replacement. And so his conclusion was that bone marrow stem cells can potentially prevent you from getting a knee replacement and do a good job of decreasing pain, increasing range of motion and function.
0: And again, is that an in-office situation?
1: Absolutely. It's something that can be done in the office, usually with local anesthesia and some laughing gas.
0: Uh, Yeah. And what is the downtime on that?
1: The recovery time is actually very similar to the PRP, where if we're treating a knee, we're going to put you on crutches for the first two to three days. We'll baby the knee for the first 10 days, get you into physical therapy after that. And then usually I'm going to do a booster injection around six weeks with your own plasma, so your own PRP at that time.
0: How do you store the plasma? Is, is it frozen or where's your plasma go?
1: <laughs> no, absolutely not. It's going to be taken the day of the procedure. So FDA does not allow us to keep it, save it, store it. So anytime you come in, we draw the blood, spin it, and then inject it right back into you.
0: I gotcha. And then when you come in six months later, the follow-up, you just repeat that again. Correct. Okay. It seems so science fiction-like, you know? So, okay, what's next after that one?
1: Microfragmented adipose, fat for short. And essentially this is where we do kind of a fat transfer or a mini liposuction where we take fat out of the glutes, out of the belly, and we wash it, then we concentrate it. So fat contains a high number of mesenchymal stem cells. Fat also provides cushioning and lubrication. So when we're putting this in joints that have osteoarthritis, we're seeing that people are getting less pain, better range of motion, and better function. What we're finding is clinically, it seems to last for about three to five years. So if you have somebody that has bad knee osteoarthritis, and we do one of these microfragmented adipose transfers, we can usually get three to five years of less pain, better range of motion, and better function. There was a recent study that came out with a two-year data set follow-up. It was uh, approximately 120 knees also. Average age was in the sixties. So these are, you know, people that are not spring chickens necessarily. You know, we grade osteoarthritis stage one, two, three, and four. One is mild, two is moderate. Three is moderately severe. Four is bone on bone. They took the twos, the threes, and the fours, and they treated them with the fat. And they found that 82% of the people that were treated had a positive result, meaning they had less pain, better range of motion and better function. And those results lasted out to two years. And that's just when that study ended. I think they're continuing to follow up with that. We'll probably get three year data uh, in the next 12 months or so.
0: And after that, can you do another one? There's no reason why
1: you can't repeat it.
0: Right. Like, what is it? I guess, like steroids, you can't do more than so many, right? Shots, is that right? Yeah. So,
1: historically, they would say, you know, we don't want to give you too many steroid injections. We know that steroids are not necessarily good for joints, for tendons. What we also have is preliminary data now looking at patients that come in with knee osteoarthritis and patients that would get standard treatment of care, which would be a steroid injection, versus people who didn't get steroids and got platelet-rich plasma instead. What they did is they followed them up for five years and they looked at what was the progression to knee replacement. The group that got the steroid injections had about a 25% risk of progressing to knee replacement within five years. The group that got the platelet-rich plasma about 5% chance of them progressing to a knee replacement in the next five years. So we're getting some early data coming out saying that if we can be preventative, if we can catch people early on, treat them with PRP, this can potentially be disease modifying. We have to do a lot more studies, but the early data is kind of pointing towards that. And so right now, you know, we are so reactive where I have knee pain, give me a cortisone shot, just give me something to mask it, buy me some time, instead of saying, what can we do to slow down this progression? Or should we be screening patients in their 40s and 50s to say, yeah, you have mild knee osteoarthritis, just like we screen patients who have diabetes and say, all right, what things can we do at this stage to prevent you from getting to the point that you're going to need a knee replacement? I want to see it. So 30 years from now, we were like, we were barbaric. We were, we used to cut people open and stick metal in them. When we can now go through and say, you have an early stage, let's treat it at this early stage. So it never gets that far gone.
0: That makes so much sense. And so you think that's coming up? I mean, it's around the corner. People are going to start knowing about all this or what do you think?
1: We have patients now that they've truly believe in this. They'll come in once a year just to get their PRP shots because they know that when they do that, it keeps things at bay. They don't have pain and they stay pretty functional. I think, you know, we need more data, more evidence to really support this. And that's going to take another five to 10 years to really kind of collect that data, show that data, prove it. But I really truly believe that that's going to be the future of kind of orthopedic medicine.
0: God, that's so exciting. That's so exciting.
1: It's really, you know, looking at the mindset around anytime we're injured, anytime we're injured, the first thing that we want to do is we want to look at the biomechanics, right? What caused this injury? Was it poor posture, was it sitting behind a desk for 12 hours a day, allowing our core to get weak, trying to figure out what are the underlying issues that led us to that. And that's why I love working with good physical therapists because when we work with physical therapy, they can look at the biomechanics and correct some of these underlying issues. And a lot of times if we do good physical therapy, correct the underlying issues, we're fixing the underlying problem. And we don't have to be interventional. We don't need injections if we can fix the underlying issues. Then if we've worked on our underlying issues, we worked on our core strength, we worked on, you know, the biomechanics, and we are still having issues, that's when I think we step in. Or if we're doing some of the underlying stuff and we don't know what is the underlying cause, that's part of our job is to be a diagnostician, to try to figure out where the underlying issue is, to use our ultrasound to see, is it just overuse, is there a tear, is it a strain, you know, is it a sprain, to really give you that true diagnosis. And then if we've done the conservative care and we're not better, then we can talk about using these interventions. And that's where prolotherapy, the platelet-rich plasma, the bone marrow or the microfragmented adipose come into play.
0: Yeah, that makes so much sense. Again, what you're saying is let's get ahead of it. Let's do some prevention and use again, your body to heal itself. And then you'll support it along the way. And in hopes that we can eliminate surgery or at least push surgery out as much as possible.
1: Right. That's our last resort. Now there's certain cases that come in the door and I look at them and I say, I don't have anything good to offer you. I think surgery is going to be your best option. And, you know, that's our job is to be honest with the patient and let them know that these are the best treatment options for you. There's limitations to what my treatments can do. And so, you know, we have those conversations with patients. Those are always tough conversations because, you know, they came hoping that we had a miracle and there's a lot of times we can help, but there's sometimes I'm nope, I need to refer you to one of my surgery colleagues because this really needs surgery. Now, what we're also starting to do now is we're doing a lot more of joint cases with surgeons. So there are certain cases where people may not need a replacement, but they do need something cleaned up or may not need a whole shoulder rotator cuff repair, but they may need to get some bone spurs shaved down, some loose bodies removed. And so we'll have the surgeon work with them, do that portion of things, and then see us afterwards where we can use the regenerative treatments to try to prevent a actual replacement to buy them more time. And so those are really where I see a lot more of the future going. And I really enjoy those cases kind of working jointly with the surgery counterparts because there's certain things they can do and certain things that I can do that all really kind of benefits the patient and helps the patient get better.
0: Right. It like makes sense to be able to combine the best of the both of them, you know. What about regenerative neck and back treatments? What do you do for those? We
1: have a couple of docs that specialize in treating the spine, Dr. Iskovich and Dr. Mulvaney. What we're seeing is a lot of new data coming out over the last five to 10 years, looking at platelet-rich plasma, bone marrow, treating intradiscal. So we talk about disc herniations in the low back. You see those on MRIs. When those discs herniate, essentially we think of the disc as like a jelly donut. And sometimes we get that little hole where the juice from the donut starts to come out. And so that's what happens when the disc bulges, And then that starts to collapse that disc and that starts a process of degeneration. So on MRI, we see that those discs become dehydrated. So they don't have water. So then you start to get achiness, stiffness around that area there. There's more and more studies showing that if we put PRP or bone marrow into those discs, we can decrease the pain from the disc. We can rehydrate that disc where it's actually starting to retain water again. And it's kind of moving a lot of these things forward. We can also use the PRP into other areas of disc pathology, which is called facet arthritis. We can use it as a epidural injection. So a lot of times, people that have the disc herniation, they get epidural injections of steroids, which mask the pain, which they're great anti-inflammatory, but we're limited. We don't want to do too many of them. You know, we talk about the steroids; they can cause degeneration of joints, they can weaken tendons and ligaments, they can also lead to osteoporosis. These are not injections we want to use all the time, but you know, there's a time and place where we can use those. But if we've used a couple of those, got temporary relief, but not long-term relief, using your own plasma around these areas can sometimes give us longer-term relief and be a lot more natural and not necessarily detrimental.
0: I guess the question then becomes, does insurance cover it?
1: So unfortunately, insurance does not cover this. The analogy I like to use going back to my Navy days is that insurance is like a big aircraft carrier. And trying to get that to turn around is a very difficult thing to do. And so they want overwhelming data and overwhelming pressure from their patrons to say, we need this covered. And so that's where regenerative medicine as a field, I think we need both lobbyists as well as patients coming and demanding that they need these treatments. There's more than enough data to say that this is not experimental anymore. We have level one study upon level one study. When we look at regenerative medicine, we look at the level of data that we have to do these studies, and we compare it to orthopedic surgery and the level of data that they use for most of their surgeries, we blow them out of the water. There's a lot more level one evidence for regenerative medicine than there is for the most common orthopedic surgeries done on a daily basis. So it's not a data issue. They don't have a dog in that fight. They don't have an incentive right now to start to cover this. And so we really need to get lobbyists, we need to get support, we need to get patients, you know, really kind of calling the insurance company saying, why aren't we covering this? You know, this can save us money in the long run. We look at the cause of a knee replacement, it's about $50,000 to get that done. It's a lot less invasive and it's safe. So even if it doesn't work, you can still progress to get a knee replacement. You can still progress to get a rotator cuff repair. So there's not a lot of downside to doing this. And so that's really where some of the next steps are. How do we get together as different organizations to say we need a lobbyist? We need to be on Capitol Hill. We need to kind of push to say that this is the future. This is the way that it should be done. It's safer. It's less invasive and it's going to save the healthcare system money. And it's going to prevent any of the adverse effects of surgery. You know, as great as a surgeon can be, They're still going to have adverse effects. And when surgery goes bad with hip replacements and joint replacements, it can go really bad. And so the chances of having those adverse outcomes with just an injection of your own plasma are significantly
0: less. So you're right. It is about getting educated and really finding out what's out there. And as you say, demand it from our insurance companies and start talking more about it. As you've said, it's been around. It's just that we haven't really been exposed to it. And it's important for people to really learn how to take better care of themselves. And clearly, this is a way to do it.
1: And when we look at certain other countries, like in Asia and Japan, their government, they're funding the research. They're actively supporting that. And so we have to kind of get the U.S. on board and kind of realize the benefits of it and realize that it's not a threat to surgeons. If we look at this and we say, hey, What this does is this actually funnels you, the patients that actually need surgery. It allows us to see the patients that you guys don't necessarily need to see. And we can try to get them better with the least invasive care possible. If they're not better, then we funnel the surgeons to the surgeons and they get to operate at that standpoint. And when we do this, this decreases healthcare costs. It's less invasive. And it's really the way that medicine should be practiced,
0: I believe. We do too, we do too, (laughs) definitely.
1: I think that, you know, the other thing that goes along with that middle of the road approach is what we call functional medicine. Working with good people that can optimize your health. If you have hormonal issues, correcting your hormones. If you're having vitamin deficiencies, you know, using supplements to augment, you know, any deficiencies you have. We sometimes add in collagen supplements for people that have tendon issues in order to optimize that. We sometimes use, you know, supplements that contain glucosamine, chondroitin, MSM, green lipple muscle. These are all supplements that can help out with osteoarthritis. Anything that we can do to optimize your health, making sure that you're eating well, that you're active, you know, because motion is lotion. You got to move. You can't just sit on the couch and expect to get better. These are things that help to optimize our outcomes and allow patients to get back to enjoying life.
0: God, excellent. God, Dr. John, thank you. This has just been such incredible information. And I know our listeners are going to be thrilled to hear all about this because we're getting lots of questions about it. So thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha, And I'm Doro. Be well.